So he chose Israel to be a light for all of the nations. And actually in the structure of the temple, so the first temple, the second temple, the outer court area was the place where the Gentiles would come and join the Jewish people in worshiping Yahweh. And so um, during the Passover week when Jesus comes to Jerusalem and we see him get that whip and start to cleanse the temple of the people who are, um, what is it, the money changers and the people who are selling whatever it is, he's in the outer court. And he says, It is said, it's written, that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. And maybe within this context, we can see that when Jesus says robbers, what he's referring to, he's not saying, you guys are, someone's giving you a a tin and you're giving them back. I don't know. I don't have that that, uh, example worked out in my head, so I won't try to do math (laughs) on the spot. But (laughs) he's, he's not talking about people dealing unfairly. He's maybe referring to them turning inward in nationalism, because we remember, as Nathaniel told us a couple weeks ago, that as they were oppressed by the Roman Empire, um, there were all these efforts to preserve the Jewish identity because they knew they were set apart, and so they were trying their best to remain set apart. Um, and so as Jesus calls them robbers, I think what he's alluding to is, I gave you a gift for the rest of the world, and you've stopped extending that gift to the rest of the world. And so at the table of the Lord that we come to, we see the clearest vision of who God is. On the cross, we see how God deals with the problem of evil. He who is power laid down his power in order and to enter into sin and death itself and set humanity free. And so we can go to the next slide. It's funny, Scott showed us the icon of the Easter Bunny because here's the icon of the crucifixion, and this is actually an Orthodox icon. Um, I've been reading this, uh, uh, several things by this biblical scholar named Brad Jerzak, and he is Greek Ortho- or Eastern Orthodox, and I think he actually used to be a part of the Vineyard Movement, and so he's very familiar with um, the evangelical you know, way of life. But it's been really neat to learn from him different values that the Orthodox Church has, uh, this super historic stream of Christianity that even predates the Catholic Church. And one of the things he says about the icons is that in their tradition, they consider these valid translations of the gospel, which I think is really cool because that means if you can't read, you can behold the gospel stories from these images. And as well, I think we can all agree that there's something about visual art that speaks to us in a way that words can't sometimes. And so when we come to the table of the Lord, and we behold the elements, this is the image that we're looking at. This is what we're remembering. And something else that this guy talks about, um, and I think it's kind of a trend in, in theological discussions right now, is that Jesus on the cross is the ultimate revelation of who God is, like once and for all. History has been full of us trying to understand what God looks like, Does God care about us? Does he care about suffering? Um, And this is Jesus revealing to us the fullness of God in his body, showing the world this is who God is. And on the cross, we see that God is love, and he is love that is self-giving, radically forgiving, and co-suffering. And co-suffering means compassionate. And so God isn't absent from our suffering. He actually engages with it, and he's very present in it. Um, and so this, this is the good news that we talk about. 
I think the, the table and the good news that we share is synonymous because it's the same thing. So how do we share this with others? And when I, when I think of others, I think of people who maybe aren't, aren't part of churches, who maybe aren't Christians. And this is where this intertwines with evangelism. And I don't think we share this table by getting a little communion tray and walking around with a piece of bread and some, you know, cup of juice and say, here, let me tell you about this. And I, I actually don't even think it's necessarily inviting people into church to share it with us. But I think what we observe at this table is the body of Christ broken and his blood poured out for us, for our healing and for our nourishment. And the way we share this table with others is by doing that ourselves. Us who call ourselves Christians or little Christs, we are broken and poured out for the healing and nourishment of the world. So when Jesus says, go and make disciples, go and multiply this message, let it sink into your lives and bear fruit, go and live the way that I lived, there's no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. This is what he's talking about. This is our vocation, and this is what it means to follow him. Now, I don't know about you, but I know a few people who don't think very positively about God or about the church. And sometimes these conversa- conversations are interesting to engage in because you're, usually I feel like I get a, a response from people that makes me think, I think you think God is different than who I think he is. And I think evangelism, sharing the message of Jesus, um, faces a unique challenge at this point in history as Jesus gave us this command to go and make disciples 2,000 years ago. We're 2,000 years later. And we're living in the reality that over the centuries, the church has betrayed the trust of the world in very significant ways. Because the command of Jesus to go and make disciples and invite others to this table remains the same, I think it's essential that we're aware of our place in history. Because even if we are not the ones who have broken trust, even if our intentions, our actions, our words are pure and good as can be, it's still... I, I can't even count the number of times when I've spoken with people about God and the way they respond. It's almost like they're, they're talking about something different than what I'm thinking of. And that's because I, I'm not the only person that they've encountered who has, ta- who has clued them in on who God is. Um, in America, especially in Texas, it's very rare that, that people don't have some understanding of God, of Christianity. So if this message is so good, if this is who God is, if he cares about the suffering of the world and he's doing something about it actively, then why don't more people care? And how is it that there are people in our world today who actually refuse to step into churches because they have been so hurt by them? So in order to understand this, I think we have to go way back and then we'll come and catch up to the present moment. Um, so again, Nathaniel, I feel like the message he, he spoke really sticks out in my mind because I heard the process of it for several weeks, and so I learned a lot while he was, you know, preparing. Um, and so as he spoke to us about the historical context of first century Judaism, we know that the Jews were oppressed during the time of Jesus by the Roman Empire. They were occupied, and they were looking forward to a Messiah who would come and literally overthrow Rome and free them from oppression the way that God had saved the Israelites out of Egypt. And that's because throughout the Hebrew scriptures, 
we see God again and again positioning himself against systems of power that exploit and dehumanize and degrade humanity, not necessarily because they're systems of power, but because of the way they maintain power, because that, the way they maintain power is often at expense of humans and at the expense of the flourishing of creation. And so as we see God positioning himself against these ways of maintaining power, we often see him positioning himself with or on the side of the underdog. One of my favorite examples of this is the story of Hagar. She was an Egyptian. She wasn't an Israelite. But God saw her and cared for her after Sarah, who was her master, dealt with her harshly. And actually the Hebrew words that describe the way that Sarah treated Hagar is this, are the same words that describe the way that Pharaoh abused the, the Israelites in Egypt. And so the same way that God cared for the Israelites in that context, he saw Hagar and he cared for her. And that, that uh, provoked Hagar to call him El, El Roy. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it means you are the God who sees me. And so imagine Rome, the empire of empires, which ruled its conquered land with brute force, who squashed insurrectionists, people who would resist that force with crucifixion, which is what we see with Jesus on the cross. Imagine them suddenly adopting Christianity as a state religion. That, it feels kind of disorienting. Like, wait, this doesn't, I don't understand. And that's exactly what happened with the ruler Constantine in uh, 313 AD. He saw that Christians were growing in number, and historians think that at that time they represented about 10% of the population of the empire. And he realized that if, as they would continue to grow, they would pose a threat to the way of life of the Roman Empire because Christian priorities, morality, the worldview was just different. And so it was basically, if you can't beat them, join them. And so he decided that all of Rome would be Christian, and if you weren't a Christian, you would be persecuted. What a flip. And at, at first glance, you might think, well, isn't this, could this be a good thing? Like, could we teach, could Christians like teach Rome how to follow Jesus and be this incredible force for good? But that didn't happen. It didn't change the morality of the empire or the way they functioned, except that maybe Christians weren't persecuted and killed the way they had been. But rather, they began to tweak aspects of Christianity and the church as it grew to accept the way that Rome functioned. And that was the start of Christendom, or the church as a political force in the world. This is when Roman soldiers would start carrying the symbol of the cross on their shields as they would go into battle. And they actually felt like their battles were more successful when they did that. But does that sound like loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you? Does that sound like the way that Jesus asked us to live? I don't think it does. It does sound to me a little bit like the warrior God of the Old Testament. But if Jesus himself, as he lived in Jesus on the cross, is the ultimate revelation of who God is, maybe we need to reread those parts of the Old Testament with our eyes washed with the blood of Jesus and see what, what is God doing and what are ways that maybe we're making God into our own image. And so let me give you an example of why I think all of this is relevant, why Rome and Constantine is relevant to us extending the table of the Lord to other people today in New Braunfels in 2019. Um, you can go to the next slide. 
So I was a part of YWAM for five years right after high school. I've mentioned that to you guys. And during that time, somewhere in there, I went on a two-month, actually, it was in 2009, so that was 10 years ago. I went on a two-month outreach to Mexico City. And have, have any of you been there? Yes. So this, if you haven't been there, is the center of the city. It's called the Zocalo. Um, this is, I mean, this is one of the largest cathedrals in Latin America. Um, and the Zocalo, this area over to the right, kind of makes up a square. And there's a giant Mexican flag in the middle of this square. And so every day, the team I was with, we would go and we would sit somewhere in this square, oftentimes by the church, and we would paint, and people would come.